0: listening to episode 56 of the Daily Growth Discipleship Podcast. I'm Josh Havens. And I'm Chris Lambert, And we're on a journey to learn
1: what it means to live a lifestyle of discipleship. We're glad you're joining us and hope that as you set aside this time for God, that he would help you grow today in the everyday moments of life.
0: Today, we're talking with Sheila Wise-Rowe. Sheila is the executive director of the Both House, an international healing and reconciliation ministry. She has over 25 years of experience as a Christian counselor, Spiritual director, educator, writer, and speaker. She was also a member of the Redbud Writers Guild and writes essays for the Redbud Post. Her new book, Healing Racial Trauma The Road to Resilience, hopes to help those who have experienced racial trauma recognize it, find healing, and develop a life of resilience.
1: As we once again talk about race and racism on the podcast, we wanted to address this issue from a different perspective. Racism, Being rejected and persecuted because of the color of your skin traumatizes its victims. So, how should we as disciples respond? As we learn from Sheila in this episode, people of color need to develop a resilience through their relationship with Christ and His community that gives them the strength to withstand the racial injustice they experience. And for white people and others of privileged status, we have an opportunity to listen and learn from our marginalized brothers and sisters. In the fight to see God's kingdom come to earth and his will done in our midst, may we mourn with our brothers and sisters who mourn and show them love that affirms who they are as image bearers of God. Sheila, welcome to the podcast.
2: Hi, glad to be here.
1: Really excited to be talking with you today about your book, Healing Racial Trauma, The Road to Resilience. Um You know, really wanted to have you on because when I first saw your book, it's dealing with this topic of racism, which is, you know, it's the thing that everybody's talking about. It has set our country on fire, you know, in the last few weeks. It's been an issue that the American church and society has had to deal with for hundreds of years now. Um, And yet it is still one of those issues that is extremely difficult to deal with, especially for... Um, again, like we, like Josh and I have been discovering and and having conversations with people, it, it, it's a lot more difficult for white people to deal with than we had originally thought that it was. And so, um, I, I kind of just want to say, at the beginning of our conversation, we don't approach this topic lightly. We we do with much yeah. fear and humility, and we really just want to learn from you. And. I really appreciate the perspective of your book because, number one, it's not just a facts and figures book, although those are good and they they, they have very valuable place for us to learn. But your book dealing with healing from the racial trauma, I think, gives a good perspective for, um, for people of color, obviously, to deal with the trauma that they have uh, gone through, but also for people like us who are white and our audience is most likely – mostly white, to also understand Mm -hmm. our brothers and sisters who have dealt with these issues in a really empathetic way. Like we can, we can really start to understand that pain and see things differently. And then I think that leads to better change in our hearts and our actions. Um, But let's just start with why you wrote the book. What motivated you and and where did this come from?
2: Yeah, I, um, so my background is as a counselor. And um, I have counseled people from all sorts of diverse backgrounds over the years, and, um, and it often issues around racism, people's experiences of racism, the wounds that they carry often came up in therapy with um, mostly people of color, um, a lot, large number of black folk, huge issue. So it's always been something that I've had to deal with, um, in, in therapy sessions. Um, we, my family and I, we moved to South Africa. So we lived in Johannesburg from 2005 until 2016. And, um, so we, we actually were not here for the whole Obama years. We were, were gone. <laughs> we have no idea what that really was like. Um, and I think that, you know, some people may find that hard to believe, but the rest of the world is not that fixated on America in, in that way, in terms of their own political stuff they're dealing with. So um, I, we came back in 2016, right in the middle of the election cycle. And it really was um, quite a, a shocker in a way because we, I'm Boston born. Bred lived here, went to college here, never moved from here until um a little bit in Paris, but then Johannesburg and so we come back and it's it just feels like the wheels are off in many ways um in some ways it was reminiscent of growing up in the sixties seventies and um experiencing you know just this level of of tension and Division and strife, and a lot of it was around the election cycle, but a lot in things that were being said. And so, um, what I was seeing was that there were clients that I was seeing for Christian counseling and also spiritual direction, and they were coming with some of the same issues. But it was not just dealing with past trauma; it was it was recent. It was recent stuff that was being kicked up, and even over the past. Um, number of years uh, there were multiple um, killing of unarmed black men um, and women and so people were dealing with that as well as what was happening during the election cycle so that really um, was the impetus and really felt just in prayer my years of experiences including the time in Johannesburg that there was something that I felt the Lord was wanting me to contribute to that conversation.
1: So that you bring up a, a really interesting issue um, already, and, and maybe we could jump into that as is a good starting point. Sure. You mentioned, you know, coming back and the all of the turmoil starting to swirl up at the twenty sixteen election time, um, and, and this is something that Josh and I were actually talking about uh, really recently. Is that like from me as a white person, I. And still in many ways, so that's what, this that's what motivates my question, don't understand the uh, the pressure or the racism that came from Trump's rhetoric. Now, yeah. I will state I don't support Trump. I didn't vote for him. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. many Christian reasons why I couldn't. But that is one area where I recognize that I was very blind. And so maybe you could help us understand why much of Trump's rhetoric was, you know— oppressive and racist towards uh you know many minority groups
2: yeah yeah well i don't i don't understand his um motivation i think that clearly he has has a base of voters that he thought that this was okay and it kind of fed into that um for you know black indigenous other people of color the you know the latinx population what was happening was that um we're we've dealt with layer upon layer of racism, microaggressions, gaslighting, um, and and now we're in the middle of the election cycle. And the things that he said, it wasn't just in, in isolation, like, okay, that's the latest tweet. That just was an, an additional layer upon layer that had already been there. And it was exacerbated. So there are things that were said where, you know, just offhanded off the cuff comments about like who that who would live in Baltimore and just like that's that or oh, that neighborhood is a hellhole, and the reality of as a a person living in that community, this is your community, mm-hmm. and you're trying to make do and it that tweet does not um, recognize the realities of the disinvestment that happened mm-hmm. in those communities, and the fact that. You know, whether it's Baltimore or even here in Boston and other places around the country where there is an it is there's not equity in terms of how resources are distributed, how services are met. And so what you see is a result of a disinvestment. Mm -hmm. And so so someone saying that is just very painful, harmful. um, It's shaming. and, And there are ways in which, you know, there was the backlash around that because. Um, it just was one more, one more thing. Yeah. Being said. Yes.
1: Yeah, so I guess it's like being, uh, kicked when you're already down because it, it, you know, if you like, I like that disinvestment, if you have been, if your neighborhoods or your, um, your, your cities are in these States because of this neglect, and then you then get blamed for that sort of thing when, you know, right. it often right. resulted in that because of, you know, the unjust, racist policies that were being implemented in some cases decades ago and in many cases even still today that it's uh, right. at that point it feels like it's an attack on you not necessarily, okay. I mean everybody agrees that, that you know, crime is bad and poverty is bad but if we get there because of racist policies and then you blame those people well then that, that starts to become a racist uh, accusation Am
2: I understanding that correctly? Well, and it's not based in in reality. I mean, we a recent study in Boston in terms of wealth, the wealth gaps showed that the average white person in Boston has over two hundred thousand dollars in assets, equity, and often it's in property. And because of redlining, there is there's none of that for the black population and brown population as well. Are the amount of assets that the average black or brown person has is $8 compared to two over $200,000 for the white population. It's ridiculous. And it is about who has ownership, who, and, and if you're blocked from that, or, you know, there's predatory lending, there's all these things that have been set up. So it's nothing new. Um, it happened then and it continues to happen now. Yes. Yeah. And we're seeing these communities shifting and gentrification. So, you know, it's, these are things that are painful, um, they are traumatic because uh, we're we're seeing the consequences of um, loss of livelihood, loss of life, um, health disparities. COVID is revealing that you know we're we're having access, not having access to testing, not having you know when it comes down to who's getting a ventilator, you know because of the health disparities we're not getting them, and so that's why the percentage of Black and, and Indigenous as well, and Latinos. The numbers are off the charts in terms of hospitalizations and deaths. Yeah. So all of that, you know, it's reason, and you know, this is part of why um, people are in trauma right now and in a lot of pain. Mm-hmm. So let,
1: let's, um, let's define our terms here. That's one of our favorite things to do on the podcast because if we don't define our terms, we found that we're often talking past each other yeah. in, in conversation. And you do a great job of this in the book. We're not going to go through every term um, that you, yeah. you cover, but I would like to point that out. If anybody is uh-huh. interested in, in really getting a, a more in-depth look at all these terms, you do a great job of, of covering that in your book. Mm-hmm. Um, the ones I really want to talk about, though, let, let's define what we what we mean when we say like race and racism, just to to make sure we're talking about the same things here. So, right. um, w- what's the definitions um, for racism that you're working with?
2: So, I'm looking at look at racism not just as it's about, you know, I don't like people of color, I don't like black folk, that's not it. It is more than that, it is It is that, it is interpersonal, um, it's systemic, meaning there are systems, I talked about COVID, medical care, you see that in systems, you see that in real estate, and you know, who, who owns property, who does not. Um, you see it in public spaces, um, there's the whole thing about what monuments need should be up, what should be torn down, um, you see that environmentally, you know Flint Michigan still doesn't have real 100% clean water um and it's predominantly a black and poor community that was affected. Um, you see it in, it's internalized with some folks. So you see some um, black folk, particularly right now, um, and you also see some Latinx folk as well who are kind of propped up and they're the ones who basically say everything is fine. Um, so there's a way in which there's an internalization of that or even a defensive othering, like I'm not like them, mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm better than. Um, and so those are some of the forms of racism um, gaslighting is another one, which is the, just the sense of that's, you know, we experience something, we share, like this happened to me, um, the policeman pulled me over, or I was tailed in the mall, and it's minimized or ignored. Um, that's an uh, often an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and then microaggressions, just these little small slights. And it seems like what's the big deal? You were tailed in the mall. But if you're, you know, if you're like Philando Castile, who went to Dying, he had been pulled over by the cops 49 times before that, Mm -hmm. and so there's a level of harassment with microaggression. So I I I hope people take away the realities of these are layers of things. This is not one incident. And I think when you talked about this sense of how how do white folk actually understand what when we talk about racism, what is it? Mm -hmm. It's 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 pervasive. It's intensive. Um, does it end up in violence? Sometimes, um, sometimes not, but it's a layer upon layer of it. Yeah.
1: So, and unfortunately I feel like we have to dig into this a, a little bit deeper if you're willing to go with me and, and then we can kind of bounce back and forth because it has been something that we've been exploring lately. Uh, we had David Swanson on the podcast a couple of weeks ago now, and mm-hmm. his, his book was Rediscipling the white church. And again, he put <laughs> things in a way um, I, I want to say like white language in a way because he used all of the language that like I hear, even my normal reactions to stuff and, and, and the reactions that I hear from people. But I, I'd love to get your perspective on some of these things because like you're talking about, like gaslighting is a really – real thing that I didn't realize cuz actually we we I we talked about store, it on the yeah. podcast yeah we're like we did it i mean we didn't actually do it yeah. but like those were the thoughts that we had in our minds too is when one of our friends here in Springfield Missouri had gotten mistreated at a uh, at a I won't name the restaurant a fast food restaurant um yeah. it, you know he he was on a a group that we're all part of and was saying you know like i i was treated you know racially here and i was like well wait a second like to me i just thought well, that's just how those people treat people. Like they're not. We don't have the best. Yeah. Because uh, we've
0: also been treated like that at this
1: restaurant. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And yeah. so, yeah. again, I, like white people do go to this. I don't know how to say this really well. It's, it, it's difficult. What I'm realizing is, is because we don't see it. Yeah. It becomes yeah. easy for us to deny that it that it really happens. And so we we say things right. like. You know, it's like all redlining. All oh, that ended like forty, you know, or maybe more than that you know, years no. ago, right? It's like, yeah. but that's what we we say. It's like on the books, it, it's not there, and right,
2: but it is. Yeah. But it
1: is, and so yeah. <laughs> what is what is your response, or how? What do you think white people can do to really help for our perspectives to understand our brothers and sisters' perspectives, who are saying like, no, no, no look, this stuff really does actually happen. And it's like, I mean, you don't see it, but you get pulled over 49 times. Um, That's not just bad luck. At at a certain point, there is something that's really wrong, even if you can't point to the law that says, you know, or or the the training script that says, okay, now look for black people while they're driving and pull them over. Like,
2: yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. Well, no, I mean, but, but it does happen. So for instance, um, yeah. So I mentioned in the book about our, our son coming back from South Africa, he was looking at colleges and actually was um, coming, coming for that and going through the airport and getting stopped. And, in the, actually the, at Logan airport, um, they mentioned that the, the staff said that they were given instructions mm-hmm. To look out for black men particularly, and to stop them, detain them, search them, because there's a bias that okay somehow they're you know either they, there's an outstanding arrest warrant, warrant there's they have drugs on them or something of that nature, and so that level of harassment like it is actually written in in many places mm. to you know whether it's stop and frisk, those things mm. are. Um, police mandated, you're going to go into that community and you're going to just, cause you, the chances are you're going to come across some kind of criminality. Yeah. And, you know, the outrageous part about it is, for instance, in New York city, it was, it was over 600,000. I can't even remember the whole number of people who were stopped. And yet the number of actual criminal cases was, you know, like maybe in the low, you know, it was a few thousand. Yeah. But six hundred over six hundred thousand young men predominantly were were stopped. Yeah. It, so I, I would say, you know, to your question about what do white people need to do, I you know, I, I feel like books like mine, it's not the only book. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's there's something going around about you know what, you need to listen to black and brown people. You need to listen. We're not making this stuff up. We really aren't. Yeah. So listen and and learn. Mm-hmm. That's the thing. I think too many people come at this with their, from their own experience, as you said, you know, I've been to that restaurant before, maybe that's not it, or I think, um, you know, that that couldn't possibly happen because I haven't experienced that, Mm -hmm. but people are not making stuff up.
1: Yeah, and I I think I say all that to really illustrate that point that no, like, even if you're not... Um, and, and like you just pointed out, I mean, apparently it is written in, in some places, but, um, I hear that argument. Well, like show me the law that's still racist and I will, you know, gladly fight against that. I think people have most white people that aren't overtly racist, um, have at least that level of awareness. I think where it needs to come and, and, and really what my journey has been over the last few weeks and struggling through, you know, this whole thing, again, mostly catalyzed by, uh. You know, George Floyd's death has sparked, you know, a lot of this uh, uh, conversation is that this is obviously taking place at a level that I didn't realize that it was taking place before. Mm-hmm. And so I think I think that's the message that we need, like, even if you don't see it, even if you don't quite understand it, even like, I think that's what we, we, we mean when when we when, uh, you know, you say, listen, is it's like it's not just like hear them. It's, it's, it's take it in. And I think, um, like, like, again, as I've listened to more and more voices of this stuff, it's starting to make a new reality is starting to form for me, I think, Mm -hmm. where it's like, oh, wait a second. Okay, maybe things aren't as rosy as I thought they were, because I've heard this enough now, like, yeah. You know, it's not just one person that's, you know, kind of saying like some random things. This is coming from an entire group of people and many groups of people who are who are saying that they've been mistreated like this. Well, on the other
0: side of that, we have I think I'm coming to to understand now white privilege really is the, the fact that we don't have to worry about things in the yes. same way. And because we're so individualistic, we think, yeah oh, well, I don't experience that. I'm not like that. It's not my problem. Yeah. Uh, which ignores the pain and suffering that's around us, which, yeah. to be to be frank, just isn't like Christ. And Absolutely. so yeah, I, I think really the question needs to be, how can we be like Christ uh, regardless of, of what's happening around us and what we think right. might be happening around us? And yeah. like you said, I think that means... Not just uh, being willing to listen, but being willing to learn as well, and sit down yeah. like Christ did, come down into the middle of of our ex- th- this experience, and just mm-hmm. be with the person, listen, learn, and and experience yeah. the the pain and suffering that they're going through. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: yeah, and and realize that it's not it's not it didn't take place that long ago. Again, I think there's a perception for people that yeah. are like millennials yeah. and and uh, gen zers. You know, we're growing up in a very different age, and so to a lot of us, this stuff didn't—it it wasn't as overt—and we feel like it was a really long time ago. And this is why I want to get into your story. Is it, it, it yeah. wasn't? It really wasn't. No, it really wasn't. And so, no, wasn't. can you tell us a little bit about um, your story and and? and yeah. And maybe by way of, uh, of asking that we, um, or, or getting at that, I can ask the question, when did you first realize that you had undergone and, and had racial trauma in your life?
2: Um, wow. I, you know, I think that there's two levels of awareness. One is that of experiencing it. And then the second part was having like a name to mm-hmm. it. And so it very early on, um, I, was bused to. It was a voluntary busing program. So I was bused to an all-white school in a community in, in Boston, and it was there um, I began to see how I was. Um, I was seen as an other. You know, I wasn't seen um, as someone who was smart or capable. Um, I was demeaned. I was accused of of lying, cheating. Um, And I was a really like very shy, quiet kid. And so um, that was really that whole experience of being just kind of plopped into this white community coming from a black one. Um, And it was, I have to say, my community uh, when we initially moved there was one that was transitioning. So there were there were white folk there and there was a certain the standards were still there in terms of trash pickup and the school was was pretty good, and then it quickly shifted, and there was white flight, so most of the white people left very quickly and then everything started to deteriorate mm-hmm. you know the trash pickup wasn 't as often the school was really bad um, and so i that i think on a on a really subconscious level, I started to pick up there's something different happening here, like it once was this when we had. You know, uh, it was a mixed community, and now it's it's black, and it's I'm seeing this deterioration, and I'm also experiencing this racism in school, and um and I it started to f- affect me physically, emotionally. Um, you know, there were times when I'd stay home because had, I had hives, I had headaches, I just, I, I wasn't doing well, but my parents believed that this was, you know, we needed a better education because the school was really bad um, in our neighborhood, and, um, and so they believed that this was going to uh, ensure a success and uh, a future for me. But it was a painful time, and it went all the way through into the busing era in Boston. Um, which was extremely volatile for the entire city. Um, and that, you know, I, I actually was at a, my element, not elementary, middle school and high school were um, relatively okay. Um, there were incidents in the high school early on, and then we moved into a new school, which was much better. But my siblings were in the heat of it. And some of the worst schools where they were fighting and, um, And it was just a really raw and very nasty time in Boston. And so having lived through that um, and carrying just the baggage of that in terms of my identity as a black girl and then a black woman, um, it was stuff that I had to, to work through. and. Um It took years for that to happen um I wasn 't a Christian in high school or in college, and it was after college that I came to christ and i and that 's the place where I began to really unpack you know what this all meant for me yeah, um, yeah. so and- and
1: you, you bring up a couple things there. And um, like we were talking about before we started recording, um, you know, like our step one is to know your identity. Um, we're, we're coming to this awareness, Josh and I, that like identity is at the crux of pretty much everything that, that, that kind of goes right and wrong in our lives. That, you know, much of yeah. what causes our pain is because of a, uh, you know, a false sense of identity where you feel like you have to measure up to something or, or do something. Again, one of the things that's coming out of this conversation is that white people don't have that sort of sense of a whiteness identity. I, I was, I never, I've never thought about myself as being a white person. I've always just thought of myself as being a person. Again, I think that's one of those places where we miss each other in, in discussing it. And, you know, cause like white people will say, well, why can't we just be people? Like, you know, and, and I'm, I'm realizing though that is a core sense of identity because of what you just said, though you had to like that was forced on you yeah yeah how does how does that then reconciling your identity as a as a black woman um, how does that translate into um, uh, coming to faith in Christ and then what that journey of healing t- takes place in your life
2: yeah. Uh, you know what, this is the reality is God created me just as I am. And so, you know, he just as he knit you together in your mother's womb, he did it with me. He said, you know, we're all together lovely. Mm-hmm. So there was this sense of coming to that knowledge that regardless of what the world has said about me, about my people, what does God say about me? And and that was a journey mm-hmm. of realizing, you know, that, you know, Christ's redemption on the cross was was a complete work. it was a complete redemption um and so any ways in which I had internalized that the stuff and you know kind of ingested the poison of racism that that his death on the cross mm-hmm. you know mediated that like I can release that mm-hmm. um to to him and and so it was a journey of doing that and it meant for me, I saw someone for individual counseling i I was a part of um, groups in connection with the church and, and just really working through that the pain of that and, and and the implications. It had widespread implications in terms of my parents and just how it affected their lives, um, my siblings, and, and how it affected me. And so um, ha- having that relationship with Christ, um, you know, it doesn't do away with who I am as a black woman. It's I, I'm a black woman who loves God. Mm-hmm. God loves me. Um, you know, my faith is rooted in Christ. Um, but it doesn't shift my, my cultural or ethnic identity as a black woman.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, I, I guess maybe, uh, was there any, uh, work that you had to do with like releasing shame of, of maybe feeling ashamed of who you were as a black woman to embracing that identity did you struggle with any of those um uh issues
2: yeah yeah i think on a, to a to a certain degree um I, I mean i i know that there are others who've had a lot more of that carrying the shame around identity and i i wrote about that in the book um but it definitely coming out of that school experience where, you know, I was totally seen as something else. Um, And I came away with, you know, is there something wrong with me? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, do I have the skills, you know, I write about the imposter syndrome, Mm -hmm. and just that sense of, you know, am I really, because I've been told, enough times that, you know, you couldn't possibly have done this well, you cheated, you whatever. I I applied to Tufts University and I was told, I was actually told don't bother by the uh, guidance counselor and you're not going to get in. Um, And then I got in, uh, but then I went there and then it was, it was a totally different world. And I thought, oh boy, am I, so there, there is that, there was that voice that was like, you know, do you really belong here? Do you really fit in? Do you really have what it takes? And so having to fight against that um, and to be able to release that and I think because I wasn't a Christian at the time, I really just kind of muscled my way through it in terms of um, you know not fully dealing with it. It really was only after coming to Christ that I could really you know release that shame to him uh, and and embrace the fullness of what he says about me.
1: What's the difference um, between healing from maybe racial trauma and, and other forms of trauma. And, and maybe you could talk about a little bit, I guess that just that healing process in general.
2: Yeah. Well, I think in some ways it's, it's similar, um, you know, because the, the trauma does damage, not just on our minds, but our bodies. Um, it it also affects our relationships and our relationship with God as well. So racial trauma it affects it in a very similar way. I think the thing about racial trauma is that um, in most cases with uh, trauma that someone experiences, there's a, there's generally a cutoff point. And it isn't these multiple layers of it coming at you from various um, angles. And and the reality with racial trauma is that it's because racism is not, has not ended and it continues, it's not even that it's, you know, someone has this, Racial healing moment, and then that's it. They will never have to deal with it again. Mm-hmm. It really is an ongoing um, process of revisiting, re, um, you know, <laughs> submitting it to the Lord. Really, you know, inviting healing again and again. And um, the the hope, though, is that in that process, um, there are skills that are acquired. There's um, ways of doing self care, soul care, that um, have helped me and have helped others to be able to continue to walk that out with the continual assault. Mm -hmm.
1: And what are some of those uh, soul care practices that you and others have used?
2: Well, you know, it's it's really looking at all the area, like a very holistic view of who we are as people and what do we need on those basic levels. So on a spiritual level, what is my relationship with the Lord? Like, am I spending times in prayer am I spending time in the word in worship in fellowship um, you know am I listening prayer is really huge for me um, of not just speaking to God but also listening mm-hmm. um, what is it what is it God what is God saying to me in prayer what is he saying as I read the word um, there's there you know just the belief that God is is constantly speaking speaking to to us um, and that the Lord as we're going through our lives, and having encounters with people and experiences, he's speaking to mm-hmm. us. And so it's being attuned to that and really present to my life. And where is God in my life and what is God doing um, at any given moment during the day? Because he is he is involved, he is engaged, he's not detached. So spiritually, there's that piece. And then physically, um, because trauma tends to lodge in the body, and we see a lot with um, with people of color that, because we are not processing the trauma we have higher blood pressure um, there are other ailments um, that we're, we're seeing um, and we've got to make sure that we're taking care of our bodies so whether it's exercising whether it's um, you know d- movement, uh, Yeah, just even deep breathing and just really recognizing where in our bodies are we holding that stress? Because racism causes, you know, the trauma causes chronic stress that we hold and um, that can be really toxic. Mm -hmm. So releasing that, um, you know, and I I, I feel like there are ways in which we've done that um, just historically in the church. And in terms of uh, the ministry, whether it's even the laying on of hands and praying for someone, there's a connection to like, you know, us as a physical beings and, um, and there's a way of release that can happen yeah. in that way. Um, relational it's just community, church, um, emotional, you know, getting the supports that we need, uh, whether it is seeing a counselor. And that's one thing that. We don't often do in terms of uh, people of color getting help and really addressing emotional wellness, and so that's important um, so I think it, yeah, it's just really looking at every aspect of our lives and um, what are all the support structures um, and even having these places where we can process this without feeling like. Um, you know, we've got to, we've got someone looking over our shoulder, and we've got to temper what we need to say or um, or how we think. Um, but one of where we can honestly come and process it and to be able to let it go. Yeah. How can uh, we
0: uh, How can we find or maybe even make room for those safe places to to heal and work through those things? Yeah,
2: I you know I I think that the challenge is going to be. Uh, I often find that for many white communities that I've been in, that there's been a struggle when when black people or brown people say, okay, we'd like to come together. And there's almost like an uproar, whether it's at work or whether it's at a church. uh, It's almost like if there's too many of us get together, we're going to cause a riot or I don't know, we're going to cause something. And that's not, that's not the issue. The issue is, to say it is okay, it's okay for people to come together to process stuff. And and within the church, it's fine to have affinity groups. Um, you know, I've seen that work well, where it's just a bunch of us once a month getting together, sharing a meal. And are we spending all that time talking about racism and white people? No, <laughs> actually. But it simply is a, a an environment where we can just totally be ourselves and not have to think about Presenting or code switching, I'm gonna to have to, you know, say or look a certain way. Um, and it's healing and it's restful and it's restorative. And so I would say, in a church, let that happen. It's absolutely fine for that to happen. Um, there are churches that are really being intentional about that. Um, there's one in Roxbury, um, a part of, um, community in Boston, and um, the Corey Johnson Center. And so they're doing this. Um, this trauma work where they've just kind of opened the doors for the entire community where people can come and share openly about what they're experiencing. And and it may be racial trauma. It may be some other form of trauma, Um, but they also can access help in small groups as well. So um, it's providing those spaces for that. Okay. Which and that just
1: sounds like the church, man. Like that's what the church should be—is—is yeah. is to be right. that kind yeah. of a safe place. Um, uh, it, it do those groups need to happen at the lack of a better way of saying this at the exclusion of white people, or um, I guess that might need to be up to the individual group. How, how do you look at at those things? Yeah.
2: Yes. So I I think that they're both. <laughs> So I I feel like there there needs to be that space where people of color are coming together and it is to the exclusion of white people. Um and then there are other places and there are ministries like you know, Latasha Morrison's Be the Bridge. You know, she it's around the country and these are groups That are formed within communities, churches, there's thousands actually around the world now. um, And they're dealing with issues of race. It's not about these groups are not to convince people that racism exists, but more like people who know that there's an issue, maybe not the total extent of it, but they're wanting to come alongside with others with black and brown folk and white folk all mixed together and kind of grapple with this um, with some material and guidance. And that's been really powerful for many people and um, having them awaken to um, the realities of what people are experiencing because they're literally in a space where they're able to listen to somebody's story. They're engaging with the material um, and they're, they're learning and growing. So I feel like there should be opportunities for both of those. Yeah. Yeah. I think um,
1: if if I can uh, speak it from ignorance, I guess, I don't know. Um, I, I think most white people are uncomfortable with those kinds of groups, um, although there might be some that are afraid, you know, like you said, like riots or something like that. But I think it's it's mostly because. Uh, and and I find this in myself, if I can be vulnerable here is it's because, um, I have to then deal with the fact that there might be a problem that I don't want to admit or know about if, if there's mm-hmm. like, so if I, if again, if I'm leading an organization and I, you know, a group yeah. of coworkers are like, Hey, can we get together? And it's like, whoa, 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 like why, like, why, like, why do you need to get together? I don't think that's, that's good. Right. And, um, a- again, because as a white person, I I don't see myself as a white person. So it it looks to me as as it's causing more racial division and issues if we do those sorts of things. Again, what I've learned over the past few weeks is that for people of color, that's not an issue. It, like again, that, and that's very much part of what I understand now to be part of my white privilege is I don't have to think of myself as predominantly as a, as a white person where people of color they, they, those are parts of their identities and so I do I I think again I'll, I say that just for the people that are listening who who I know are probably struggling with this as well is it's it's not about it's not about you <laughs> and, and that's Good and point. that and that's the point right is it's it's yeah. And it's okay to face those things. It's, it's going to hurt. I think, um, you know, like you're talking about, there's, there's the character of Christ and his example has to flow through in love, like where there's, the, where there's times for us to all come together, but then there's times for, for healing to take place um, in in our hearts separately. And sometimes that's got to be with, um, you know, look, we don't, we don't, we don't bucket having uh, men's groups and women's groups. (laughs) Right. So, because again, there are certain topics and situations that where we need to process them with those like people. And so I don't think that this is a, this should be a problem for us, but I do think for white people, we might have to look at ourselves and say, um, you know, even if you haven't done anything overtly racist and you don't think of yourself as a racist person to look in your heart mm-hmm. and say, well, to, wait a second, maybe I have been more complicit with this than, than I think that mm-hmm. I have and go ahead and confess and allow that healing to take place when it needs to take mm-hmm. place in our own hearts. And then especially to give our brothers and sisters the, the, the space that they need
2: to heal yeah. as well. And I, I think that the other piece you know there has to be this recognition that it is happening anyway Yeah. so whether you have a group or not there's there are issues yeah. there are issues that are there and the, the hope would be that you know that that community or workplace or church is developing a culture where people who are struggling whether it's with something that's going on inside the church or outside the church can come together and then bring it to the leadership and to say we want to work on this together let's you know, let's see how we can do better. Mm -hmm. So that should be the end goal. It's it never should be well, this is just simply a griping session, just to have a griping session. But it's a place where we, we need healing, we need, we need space for that. Um, It's just it's the same thing as having a a group therapy group. You know, you wouldn't say, well, no, they should should not be a group therapy group. Uh, You know, it's a it's a group for people to come and um, to get restored, so they can go back out and, you know, whether it's fight another day or just even live and thrive yeah. again.
1: The church, right? This should be yeah. what we do as as Christians. And so, yeah, I, I find it ironic in the worst possible way that the message that we preach, we end up soiling our message so much because we just won't, we we just can't live consistently in that. And so, well,
0: um, and I think to a certain extent, we don't understand our own. Uh, we, we don't understand the pain of others because we're not willing to, I think, admit to ourselves that we're even capable of that kind of pain. It's true. Um, yeah. Which, which yeah. isn't to diminish anyone else's pain, but there's just something about understand you. You're more able to to empathize and sympathize with somebody else's pain and suffering if you've also experienced pain and suffering. And I think that's what makes some of those those group sessions so valuable is because it's a group of people yeah. coming together who have all exactly. experienced those exactly. things. And right. if you've not experienced right. that, well, it, yeah. you're going to bring a weird perspective to the group that's not quite the yeah. same as everyone else. Yeah. And so yeah. I think we can fix a lot of that with grace and a willingness to, to just be in pain with other people in the church.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Which is totally biblical. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, weep with those who weep, mourn with those who mourn. You know that scripture. Heard yeah, that somewhere. <laughs> uh, yeah, somewhere. Um, yeah. So I. Um, yeah, I think they there needs to be more of those um, those opportunities in those groups, mm-hmm. and and I've seen how healing it has been for me in my own life. Yeah. Yeah. If you, I want to ask two
1: two last questions. If you have time, you can. You can. You okay. can continue. Um. So the, the, uh, the subtitle of your book, the road to resilience, what is the vision for resilience then that we're working towards as we, we go about this healing process? Yeah.
2: Well, uh, you know, I, I kind of alluded to that earlier about having these things in place that really strengthen us. So, you know, the, the term resilience is, you know, we experience these really difficult, painful things and, um, when we are resilient we 're able to bounce back and um and even in some instances stronger than we were before and so um you know having these uh these support systems these people um the the soul care all of the above can help us to, to grow stronger out of an experience and through an experience. And so, um, you know, that's basically what resilience is, but it, it's also a, a journey. Mm-hmm. It's not just, you know, we're suddenly resilient and then we never, ever have an issue, yeah. you know, going forward.
1: Being able to uh, to to live in that world and undergo those sorts of challenges that you have to go through without losing – uh, hope and, and, and and falling off. Yeah. Um, so, so here's my last question and it's, we've also kind of alluded to it here in a little bit, but, um, I I can't help but think of that story that you told about, uh, Nori in the book, um, Mm -hmm. who was the son of a Japanese man who was, uh, you know, put in one of these internment camps, uh, Mm -hmm. during World War II. And when Nori, he became a Christian, his father said, like, how could you do this? Like, what did those White Christians ever do for us, like well, how could you do mm-hmm. that and so my question is, and this is what i 'm struggling with the most is how the church yeah. should react to these things that have we have in the name of God so demeaned our own witness by you know perpetrating acts of evil and injustice. What do you think the response is for the white church in particular, but the church in mm-hmm. general in america to to respond to this to say yeah. You know, is it like confess and and, and, and move on? Like, how should we go about dealing with these past injustices so that we can, again, begin to witness to the Mm -hmm. true love that is Christ? Because, again, this should be – this is our message, but we have clearly not lived this.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, as you said, there are ways in which the church was totally, uh, you know, culpable. And, it, and then there are other ways where it was absolute silence, mm-hmm. where there was no engagement. Um, there have been times through history, um, even now, where the church is making decisions about do we side with empire, with power, you know, we, and the implications of that on the lives of people of color is pretty disastrous. Um, and, you know, what I'm seeing, there are churches that are actually looking at what, um, you know there's a there's a church in Boston where they discovered that the church was actually built by slaves, like the building Dang. was actually built. so it's that old. it was built by slaves. and so or and and another instance that they um I think the the initial rector, pastor, or whatever owned slaves. and so they are saying, how do we do repair? You know, how do we uh, repair the damage that was done um, because those there were lives that were ruined, there were lives that were impacted because of the choices that we made and and so they are looking at well, how do we sow back into whether it 's one of the communities in in Boston, the predominantly black community of Roxbury, you know who can we partner with um and this is not about like we 're going to pay back it is it really is one of um Yeah, we did something wrong. And so often what we get from white people is just apology. Mm -hmm. It's I'm sorry. I'm sorry that happened. Um, But uh, it's more than I'm sorry, because um, to say, you know, I built this building on your backs, (laughs) you know, um, and I get to live in this house or whatever. uh, Or I'm going to take your house and I'm not going to. But, you know, sorry. It's one of i I want you to have what I have and and if the church can't say that if the church can't say i want um you know whether it's a a you know the acts model of how do we live in community? What is my expectation you know i it shouldn't be that the widows are being treated less than like we you know and we all are in this together, mm-hmm. and so what do I need to do as the church to bless to serve, um and also what to, you know we we have a lot to give as well, and you know, and I, I feel like that's the part that's missing is also that you know black folk, particularly um, indigenous, other people have come, like we have stories, we have life experience, we have been faithful in terms of our um, belief in the word, you know, black folk read the Bible more than anybody else, actually, <laughs> um, you know, and, and so, and how to be resilient, like we know that. Mm-hmm. And and so we have something to teach. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not just a one way street. It is one where we can, we can give as well. And it's an opportunity to receive. So the call to the white community is there are places where you've had privilege um, and you've had access um, and where can you help to uplift your brother and give exactly the same that you have? That's all.
1: Yeah, uh, very well said. I, I think that's, that's great. That's good. Um, where can people go to find out more about you and your work and get a copy of the yeah. book?
2: Yeah, so you can go to ivpress.com. Um i'm not sure if they they may have been i think they sold out of books but they're probably going to get more and also it's on amazon um and it's sheilawisero dot com is uh, my website and you can get a hold of me um there or at um uh sheilawiserow at gmail dot com
1: great yeah and we will have links to everything in the show notes as always so you guys can go down there and click on them and get connected with what sheila's doing so Uh, We could talk for a few more hours. I want to be sensitive to your time. Thank you so much, Sheila, for being on with us and and teaching us. And so um, this has been a a great conversation. And uh, so, yeah, look forward to
2: more in the future, though. Thank you. Thanks for having me on.
0: How can you create a lifestyle of discipleship? Most Christians think discipleship is a program or a few practices thrown in at the beginning or end of the day. and the Daily Growth Journal will help you do just that. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Daily Growth Discipleship Podcast find out more about Sheila's work, check out SheilaWiseRow.com. If you like what you've heard this week, give us a review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast player you use. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to stay up to date on everything happening at Daily Growth Discipleship, go to DailyGrowthDiscipleship.com and subscribe for free. You can also subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify.